Well, as Rich mentioned at the start, we're beginning today a new sermon series in which we're looking at some of the basics of the Christian faith. And we're using as our basis for that some phrases out of what's called the Nicene Creed. Uh, This was a set of beliefs, a set of doctrine, a creed um, that was set out by one of the early church councils in the fourth century. And we're taking a phrase or a word week by week and uh, exploring it as to what it means for us and also what it means for how we communicate our faith to people outside of the church who might not share our understanding of God. And this morning we begin with the word Father. I wonder if you have seen the film that came out last year called Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, Saving Mr. Banks was the story of the relationship uh, between uh, Walt Disney and the author of Mary Poppins, a woman called Pamela Travers. And uh, the film picks up the point where Disney, a true story, uh, has been trying to convince Pamela Travers for 20 years to allow him to transfer the book Mary Poppins into the film Mary Poppins. And year after year after year goes on, and she resists the overtures of Walt Disney. And during the course of the film, it emerges that the characters portrayed in the book and that are to be portrayed in the eventual film are not simply characters to Pamela Travers. Mary Poppins, we learn, is actually modelled on Pamela Travers's aunt, And Mr. Banks, remember the character who's the father uh, in the the family who goes and flies a kite at the end of the film, he's based upon Pamela Travers' own father. And the film has this sort of interlink between flashbacks to Travers' own childhood and the traumatic relationship that she has with her father who is an alcoholic who can't keep down a job, who mistreats his family, and the aunt who comes in in order to save the family and help them and keep them together. And in a moving speech towards the end of the film, Disney tries to convince Travers to allow him to turn the book into a film and redeem the memories of her painful childhood. And he says this, Give Mary Poppins to me, Mrs. Travers. Trust me with your precious Mary Poppins. I won't disappoint you. I swear that every time a person goes into a movie theatre, they will see George Banks being saved. They will love him and his kids. They will weep for his cares and wring their hands when he loses his job. And when he flies that kite... Oh, they will rejoice. They will sing. And the film ends with a shot of Pamela Travers watching the premiere of the film Mary Poppins with tears streaming down her face as she sees the family go out and sing, Let's Go Fly a Kite. I thought about singing it for you, but I thought, you've suffered enough. Um, That wouldn't be necessary. It's a very moving film and a very moving story. But the truth is that the relationship that we have with our fathers is one of the most profound things in life. 
Rewarding, complicated, influential for good or bad, compensated for when it's not great or indeed when it's absent, and rarely straightforward. Every father, if we're honest, just like the story of Mary Poppins and Mr. Banks and Mr. Travers, every father is flawed, just like every child. And when we come to talk about God as Father, the reality is that we all bring some baggage, something of our own relationships with our earthly fathers if we've had them, and baggage too, even if we have not known our earthly father. And yet the viewpoint of God as Father is central to and unique to the Christian faith. If you were to go out on the streets of Edinburgh and ask people to describe God to you, you would get a variety of views. We live in a society, in a culture, which is multi-faith, which is secular, which is relativistic. That is, everybody's view of God, everybody's view of truth, is seen to be as equal and as valid as everybody else's. So if you go out into the streets of Edinburgh, if you go onto George Street or Princess Street and ask people what they think of when they hear the word God, in our society, our culture, we have to treat, we're told, everybody's view as equally true and equally valid. And there are all sorts of different impressions of what God is like. So some people relate what they describe as a Father Christmas view of God. He's a benign, mythical grandfather figure who's remembered once a year. He's slightly absent-minded, but he will re reward us if we do good things. If we're, not, if we're not naughty, if we're nice, then this God will look after us and reward us. He will give us good things. He's a bit absent-minded. He made the world, but a bit like your glasses, he, he just can't remember quite where he's put it. You know, it's there. He knows it's there, just like your glasses are there or the TV remote. But you just can't remember where you've put it. And God's a bit like that with earth and with people. He's made us, but he can't quite remember because he's getting on now. And he can't quite remember where we are. Then there's the other view of God, what's been called the loveless dictator in the sky. Uh, this is beloved of, of uh, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry. This God is self-obsessed, merciless, and something of a bully. He's out to get you. Then there is what's been called the CEO of the universe, the great architect who inspires belief based on performance. He's demanding and strict. He's more Lord Sugar than Sugar Daddy. Imagine that as a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there is Yahweh of the Jewish faith. There is Allah of Islam. Both monotheistic religions that seem to share many features of Christianity, but which, if we're honest, also differ at key points. So how does the Christian faith differ to these views, and what does it reveal about God, and how is a Christian view of God different to any or all of these? Where central to the view of God revealed in Christianity is that God is in relationship. The God that we worship this morning the God that we've been singing about, the God that we prayed to for Jamie, the God that we dedicated Jamie to, is a God who exists in love. The Trinity 
is at the heart of what we believe. He is a God who is in essence love and a God who exists in love. The Nicene Creed, that set of basic Christian beliefs and doctrines agreed upon by the early church at the start of the fourth century, includes the idea of God as Father right at the beginning. The creed is made up as the church is trying to explain, trying to understand how God could be up in heaven, there in Jesus, but also still there, even though Jesus had returned to heaven. And the creed is a, is a statement, it's a way of trying to explain and understand who God is, and a, in essence, it's a, it's a way of explaining the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the next, next slide, Andrew, is a, is a picture, it's called Rublev's icon, if you haven't come across it, which is a, an ancient picture of the Trinity, with each looking to the other. You see in which way the, the inside, the table that they're forming, looking at, uh, forms a chalice, and on the table is a chalice. Eastern art sort of draws you in. Rather than going to a point, it opens out. And there's the Trinity, each looking to the other, preferring each other. Now, as Christians, we believe in a Trinity. We believe in one God, but we believe in one God in three persons. Now, when I was at Vicar Factory uh, training to be a minister, I remember my college principal, who was a good Scottish Presbyterian minister called Jamie Walker, he drove into me the fact that most Christians have forgotten that we believe in the Trinity. He said most Christians, actually, when you ask them, are monotheistic. They believe in one God and they pray to one God. And they've lost the richness of what the Trinity can actually mean. We believe in one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not Lord Sugar, Lot, not Nick, and, and not Karen Brady. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is the one who made us in the Father, who redeems us through the Son, but who gives us the gift of His Spirit... The Trinity is there again and again. And the belief in God as Father is right at the beginning of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And the belief that God is Father runs right through the New Testament. The Gospels themselves include over twice as many references to God as Father as the rest of the New Testament. John's Gospel alone describes God as Father 107 times. So John really wants us to know that we can know God as Father. There are over 100 other names for God in the Bible, but they all go back to the single idea of the Creator God who reveals Himself in Jesus through the Bible and in history, and the way he reveals himself is through the Father in the Son by the Spirit. But what does it mean for Christians today? What did it mean for the church in Ephesus, and what did it mean for the early church? Well, firstly, the most important thing, if you take nothing else away from this morning, it's a relationship of love. You and I are called into a relationship 
of love. Creeds are important. Doctrine is important. But you and I are not simply called to assent to, agree with, a set of beliefs or propositional truths. Those things are important. But fundamentally, you and I are called into a relationship. Now, words are important. Every week at the nine o'clock service, we say the creed. In the communion service, at the 11 o'clock and the 7 o'clock, we also say important words. But if it's just words, then it's meaningless. Yesterday, a couple from this church got married. They stood here at the front of church and they exchanged vows. Their words were really important. But if it was just words, then even on day one of their marriage, they are in deep trouble. It's not just words. It's not just an assent to a creed or propositional truths. You and I are called into a relationship. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, if you've got it open again, um, the reading that Andy read for us a few moments ago, the Apostle Paul described himself as a Jew amongst Jews. He'd been brought up within the Jewish faith, a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. But when he encountered the risen Jesus, something changed for Paul. And the change was so radical that elsewhere in the New Testament, he describes his previous experience of God and way of relating to God as loss. I count it as loss. I count it as nothing, says in Philippians. I count it as rubbish. I count it as garbage. Actually, what he said was, I count it as a word that I cannot use in church at 11.56 on a Sunday morning because some of you would be horrified that I would use that word in church. Paul says, my previous knowledge of God was like that compared with knowing God through Jesus, through the risen Jesus that I encountered on the road to Damascus, something has changed. Something has dramatically and radically altered. I now know God in a completely different way to the way I used to know God. And central to this is the knowledge of God as Father. It's there in Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got it, turn to it. Chapter 1 and verses 3 to 14, where Paul begins his letter with this sort of doxology, this huge um, praise to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he refers to God as Father four times. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 11. He refers to the Son's role in redeeming us in verse 3, verse 7, and verse 8. And he refers to the Spirit's role in sealing our redemption in verses 13 and 14. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is central to Paul's understanding of God. Now he knows God through Jesus. And everything has changed for the Apostle Paul. Now, there are people around who will tell you that the Trinity was made up by the early church. 
If you've got half an hour to spare and you're walking through St. Andrew's Square or by Waverley Station and you see the Jehovah's Witnesses with their glossy um, magazines and their display cases, they've undergone sort of a, a revamp in the last two years, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they've kitted themselves out all across Western, the Western world, America, um, Germany, France, uh, the UK, and that they're sent all over the UK at the moment. If you talk to somebody, a Jehovah's Witness at Waverley Station or in St. Andrew's Square with these glossy display cases, or in, in Stockbridge where I live, they stand outside Pizza Express, I wouldn't do that because I've just been driven bonkers by the smell of freshly cooked pizza all the time. And I, I sometimes want you to stop and say, in the most gracious way, do you know that Jesus loves you and died for you and you do not have to stand outside Pizza Express on a Saturday morning talking to each other with the most disinterested look you could ever have on your face for the people who were just walking past you. Because Jesus died for you and he loves you. But if you've got half an hour spare, you can stop and you can engage JWs in the conversation about the Trinity and they will deny it. If you've got more than 30 minutes spare, you can stop and have a conversation with Unitarians and they will tell you that the Trinity was just invented by the early church. And yet, here it is in Ephesians chapter 1 and it runs right through the New Testament. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And Paul says, something has changed. God has become my father. Now, Judaism did refer to God as father, but in a slightly different way. Judaism maintained, and still maintains, that we're all God's children. But the notion of fatherhood is restricted to two senses. And one of the great prayers of Judaism, it's still prayed on Yom Kippur and in times of bereavement, um, God is referred to as our father, our king, Avenu Malkinu. But in that sense, Jews understand God to be the father of Israel and as the ancestor or antecedent of all people and therefore their father. We still refer to the person, the MP, who is the longest serving member of parliament in Westminster. They're referred to as the father of the house. That, i.e., they're the person who's been there longest. That was the way in which Jews did and still think about God as father. He was the person who'd been there longest. Abraham was the father of all generations because he was the antecedent. He was the ancestor. He was the one who had been before everything as far as Israel was concerned. Yahweh was the father of Israel as a nation in a very specific sense. But Yahweh, like Allah in Islam, remains distant and remote. He is holy above all things. He is to be obeyed and followed, not loved and befriended. When people are known as a friend of God, it's picked out. Abraham, Moses, David, the fact that they're a friend of God is highlighted. Now, for you and me, post-Pentecost, we're all God's children in the church. We can all be God's friend. We can all be befriended by God. We can all live in a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And what's changed that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God can now be not just known about, but he can be known in terms of a friendship, in terms of a relationship. He can be loved and we can be loved and know his love. We can experience his love. That's what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, that you may experience, that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He's saying it's not just simply a head thing, it's going to be a heart thing as well. So it's a relationship of love that you and I are called into. The second thing about God as Father is that it gives us a pattern for parenthood and for relationships in general. Paul prays very specifically, chapter 3 and verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family or father derives its name. There's dispute about what the translation is of that particular word, whether it's family or whether it's father. What Paul is saying is that all are descended from the same family or all are descended from the same father. And either way, we in the church are now part of the same family. That's why at the beginning of in that dedication service, you committed to pray for Jamie. We welcomed him into the family of the church. We are not simply a club. We're not simply an institution. We're not simply a collection, well, an odd collection of individuals or a collection of odd individuals. Either way, you want to look at it. Look around you this morning. Go on, try it. You look around and you see a collection, an odd collection of individuals. And uh, anyway, we are brothers and sisters. And just like any other family, you do not get to choose your brothers and sisters. And the idea is that within the church... We get to practice, we get to live out, we get to try out the sort of relationships that God expects of his people. But the idea is that we do it within the safety, the security of the church, not so that we exist as a holy club looking inside, but that we might live those relationships out in the church. The idea of the church has always been that we might be God's visual aid for what it's like for God to be involved in people's lives. So we make mistakes with each other. Paul is utterly realistic in how he describes the relationships between Christians in the early church. What does he say? He says, love each other, forgive each other, bear with each other, put up with each other. He's utterly realistic. He knows what it's like to be part of a family. Put up with each other, bear with each other, forgive one another. But the idea is that this is just the practice ground. This is the training ground. It's out in the world where we're supposed to live those lives that are qualitatively different. And we've learned to do that within the security of the church. So the next time somebody really rubs you up in church, say thank you. Because they are training you, they are teaching you, they're testing you in order that your character might be shaped and refined. So this is the training ground, this is the practice pitch. 
So that when we go out into the world, when we go out to work, when we go into business, when we go into the office, when we go into the hospitals, when we go into the schools, the colleges, the universities, wherever we find ourselves Monday to Saturday, that our relationships out there model what we've begun to live in here. Now I know the tragedy, the sadness, is that often relationships in churches are actually more toxic than relationships out there. That is a problem. Why is that the case? Because the church is made up of people like you and me. And that's why we get things wrong. But the idea that's being portrayed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 is a revolutionary one. Paul is saying that the notion of fatherhood itself is derived from the fatherhood of God. John Stott writes this in his commentary on Ephesians. It is neither analogy, God is a father like human fathers, nor one of projection, like Freud's theory that we've invented God because we needed a heavenly father figure, but rather one of derivation, God's fatherhood being the archetypal reality. Paul is saying that God is the source of all conceivable fatherhood. Now that's quite a thought and quite a challenge, especially to those of us who are parents and those of us who are children of whatever age. But the reality is, of course, that we struggle with this idea because of what we bring from our experience of fatherhood through human fathers. A few years ago now, remember Kathy asking a group of 14-year-old girls on the equivalent of an SU camp what they thought of when they heard the word father. It was quite a list. Here it goes. Tall, this is the first word they thought of when they heard the word father. Tall, old, laughing, cooking, black socks, knowledgeable, awkward, authority, hate, adultery, caring, deceitful, dependable, bald, unsettled, confused, insensitive, and stubborn. That's the list written by 14-year-old girls. I now have a 14-year-old daughter and can tell you how many of those words are wrong. But the reality is that if that is your experience of fatherhood and someone tells you that God is father and your first instinct is to think of somebody who is awkward, authoritative, hate, adulterous, deceitful, unsettled, confused, insensitive or stubborn, you're going to struggle with the idea of God as father. Now inevitably we do project our experience of earthly fatherhood onto God as Father. I remember hearing Bishop James Jones when he was Bishop of Liverpool on the radio speaking about God as Father, and he described it in this way, God is the best, most loving, kindest and gentlest, generous and caring Father you could ever imagine. And James Jones actually said that he always prefixed the word Father with those adjectives, caring, loving, generous, kindest, gentlest, best, because he came across so many people who struggled with the idea of God as Father. 
Paul prays that the Father of all fathers will give the Ephesian Christians strength in their inner being and that they might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. But finally, as we finish, a word of caution. It is an amazing truth that we can know God as Father. We've already sung twice in our songs this morning the fact that we can know God as Father. The very prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who in heaven, gave us that basis that we have access to the Father. But there's a caution. And the caution is this. God is Father unlike any other Father that we have known. In knowing God as Father, we need to be careful. I've heard some Christians in the last three or four years refer to God as Papa God, or even Papa. Some other Christians, charismatic Christians, will refer to him as Father. They won't use the term the Father. They simply call him Father. It's meant to denote an intimacy. Now that on one level is good, but on the other level, it is actually deeply disconcerting. Why? Well, in the 1980s, there were two books written that were very influential upon me when I was becoming a Christian. There was Tom Smale's The Forgotten Father and Floyd McClung's The Father Heart of God. Both were really good books and really helped me. Inevitably, I brought to my experience as a Christian of God as Father, my own experience of my dad as my dad. Now, he died a couple of years ago, but sometimes our relationship was close, sometimes it wasn't that close. Because he was post-war generation, I have little memory of my dad telling me that he loved me. He did in the latter years, in the last two years, especially um, when he was a bit confused, um, he often said that he loved me. Um, he would often say he was proud of me, but he didn't often say that he loved me. He would say it very easily to my sister. He would tell her that he loved her. I'm not bitter. 28 years of being married to a clinical psychologist and years of therapy have sorted me out. But it's meant that when I think about God as Father, I had to really begin to understand, well, what does it mean to know God as Father? What does it mean for me to relate to God as Father? And I found those two books by Smale and McClung very helpful. But I've been thinking about it this week, and there is a danger in thinking in God as father or daddy. And the danger is that in doing so, we domesticate God and bring him down to our level. Now, it is true, Jesus calls God Abba in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Paul uses that word in Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 4, verse 6, to describe our relationship with God. God being known as Abba, Daddy, it's the Aramaic word that Jesus would have been taught as a child, the intimate word for a, a child to their father. The word for mum in Arabic is imi. Jesus repeats that word in the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul uses it both in Romans and Galatians. But I was thinking about it this week in relation to my 14-year-old daughter, 
who does have a pet name for me. She calls me Pappy. But I was thinking, and I love it when Iona calls me Pappy. But I was thinking, when does Iona call me Pappy? <laughs> she normally uses the word Pappy in a text, and usually when she wants something. Hey, Pappy, can he pick me up? Can he give me a lift? Hey, Pappy. So is it okay to call God Daddy in that way? Well, it is. But we need to be careful when we use it and how often we use it. We do have the knowledge of knowing God as Father, but remember there are a hundred other names for God. And even though he is Father, he is also the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the one who is sovereign over all. He is still the Holy of Holies. Nicky Gumbel in the Alpha Course uses that illustration about Prince Charles having about 60 titles Prince of Wales and Duke of the Duchy of Cornwall and whatever he's, Duke of whatever he's called in, um, in Scotland. You know, a whole range of, of different titles. But to William and Harry, he is simply dad. In public, you don't hear William and Harry often calling him dad. So I think it just is a, a caution to us that we shouldn't allow calling God Father to allow us to become presumptuous. to take it for granted, that that intimacy is there and it's a very precious thing. But in the words of C.S. Lewis on Aslan the lion, he is friendly, but he is never tame. And we need to remember that when we call God our Heavenly Father. So the danger is that we project our own cultural expectations about what it means to be a father in the West in the 20th century and read that into how we should think about God as father. But the amazing fact is that God is not a loveless dictator in the sky. He's not the chief executive officer of the universe. He's not the great architect. He's not Father Christmas. But neither even is he simply wholly distant and remote. He is God, our Heavenly Father, who has revealed himself in Jesus and invites us into a relationship of love as his children. Now, I don't know where you are in your understanding this morning of that. Whether as we've, as we've talked for the past half an hour about God as Father, that's raised issues for you. For some of you think you can easily identify with God as Father, but for others of us, maybe a bit like me, it causes you problems because of the relationship that you had or didn't have with your earthly father. Perhaps because of the way in which your earthly father behaved, when someone says to you that God is your father, that causes you difficulties. Maybe it's something that you've known about, but you want to experience in a fresh way. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is that about? Not just power, but actually deep, intimate knowledge that you are loved and forgiven. And maybe for some of us this morning, it's that that knowledge will move from our head to our hearts. Maybe it will be healing because of the relationship that we've had with our earthly dads. Maybe for those of us who are fathers, it's a challenge to think about how we're doing as dads in representing God to our children. 
Wherever we are this morning, God wants to meet with us and he wants to move us on. Let's pray together.